Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 14, Berkeley. Remember that this is a listener-supported podcast. If you like this show, then please consider signing up for membership. It only costs $5 a month, and it gives you access to an extra episode every two weeks. Who wouldn't want that? All you have to do is go to the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, and click on the PayPal subscription button. Following Sir John Harvey as Governor of Virginia in 1639 was Sir Francis Wyatt, serving for a second term. He ruled in an interim nature while a new governor was selected, and he arrived on the scene in 1642. Sir William Berkeley, one of the great figures of the colonial era and a man who will dominate our next few episodes. He had an MA from Oxford, he was a playwright, and he had served in the king's privy chamber. He was an able statesman. Not to dismiss all the other governors of the colonial era, but here was a great figure. The sort of person Virginians wanted ruling them. Berkeley continued the aims of diversification. Tobacco had become something of a staple crop at this point, but he would try to reverse it by introducing silk growing. He was soon able to produce 300 pounds of the stuff. Not bad. There's also to be another expedition to find gold. In 1643, the General Assembly gave a 14-year monopoly to a group of four who wished to try and find a gold mine along one of the more southern rivers. I don't want to get too far into the reign of Charles I and the English Civil War, at least not right now. We need to cover... Some stuff, but it's not that important to what's happening in America, so I'm not going to spend entire episodes devoted to it. If you want to know more about the English Civil War, there are plenty of books on the subject, and there are 15 episodes of Mike Duncan's Revolutions podcast, which will deal with it. So here is a very, very simple version of Charles's tax problems. Under the Tudors, England's revenue collection system was woefully out of date. It was a system designed for the 15th century, not the 17th. This caused problems for the Stuarts when they came to power in 1603 and needed to undergo a lot of structural transformations. But there was no money to do this. James I had this problem, but things got even worse for the Stuarts when Charles came to power. Taxes could only be raised by Parliament. This is a very strong English tradition. We've seen it emerging already in the House of Burgesses. No taxation without representation, as the saying goes. Now, Charles had a lot of disagreements with his Parliaments, and he could never keep one together long enough to properly tax people. But he was the king. He needed money, so therefore had several innovations for raising money through unconventional methods. This involved the regular imposition of ship money and the expanded use of monopolies. So, what was a monopoly? It's sort of what you'd expect. The government would sell a contract to a business. That business would be the only one allowed to conduct that particular task. This could be making and selling soap, or it could be mining for gold. The government would take a set percentage of revenue from the monopoly, and so it was a way of raising money without having to work with Parliament. 
This was the sort of deal agreed in 1643 between the Crown and the four entrepreneurs, who wanted to go looking for gold by heading south of the Apatomanox River. The monopoly was granted for 14 years, and the Crown would take the royal fifth of whatever might be produced. This would set a precedent for later agreements, but the venture would never get going, due to an event which took place the following year. While the governorship of Berkeley had made a promising start, disaster hit the colony in 1644 in the form of Oppenschankenhof. Yes, he was still alive, you may be surprised to learn. The great man was still around, and he still hated the English. Over 20 years since he last launched a great assault. He was old by this point. We have no way of knowing exactly how old, but it seems he was over a hundred. We're also told that he needed other people to raise his eyelids so that he could see, and that he was carried around in a litter. While he was physically weak, he was still mentally fully alert, and was determined to push out the English. Perhaps he saw how much weaker his people had become in the last twenty years, how much more entrenched the English were becoming, and that he was about to die. This was his last chance to try and reclaim his land, so on Thursday, April 18th, 1644, an attack was launched on the English settlement. 500 were killed in the initial raid. While the 1622 uprising had nearly destroyed Virginia, and had brought about a return of the 1609-1610 starving time, the English were incomparably more secure. Even back in 1622, only the frontier settlements were destroyed. Ones further east, such as Jamestown, remained largely intact. Everything was better fortified now, and there were too many English to force them all out. Berkeley led a spirited defence of Virginia, leading counterattacks personally. This was successful, as Oppenschankenhof was captured, and was to be taken back to England to take before the king, but a soldier shot him instead as vengeance for the damage he had caused. Without their spirited leader, Powhatan resistance collapsed and peace was made. With this defeat, the Powhatans ceased to be an important factor in history. Disease had decimated their population, the English outnumbered them, as well as having superior firepower and they had lost their two great leaders, Wahan Sonnikok and Oppenschankenhof. They would not be the first, and they would not be the last, people to be crushed by the European advance. Now, for constructing a narrative, things get even worse. There isn't really an important event between the Powhatan Uprising of 1644 and Bacon's Rebellion in 1676. Life just sort of carried on. But don't worry, I'm not going to leap forward 30 years. I can find some interesting stuff going on in the meantime. The English Civil War was going on throughout all of this, and Berkeley was a royalist, loyal to Charles. Many of those royal supporters, the Cavaliers, moved to Virginia to escape from the growing power of the Parliamentarian Roundheads, This migration would form a core of about 100 families who would intermarry 
and help create the Virginian aristocracy. I'm not going to throw a hundred different family names at you, but I'll give one example. Two of these families would intermarry in the mid-1670s, William Randolph and Mary Isham. Direct descendants of these two would include President Thomas Jefferson, Chief Justice John Marshall, and Confederate General Robert E. Lee. Royalist leanings turned into open rebellion in 1649 when Charles was executed, and Berkeley pledged his loyalty to the monarchy, and said that anyone who disagreed with him was guilty of treason. This, unsurprisingly, earned both Berkeley and Virginia the ire of Parliament. The colony was instructed to stand down, something peacefully done in 1652, when Berkeley resigned. The rule of the Commonwealth of England was hard on Virginia, due to the first of a series of laws, which was created in 1651, the Navigation Acts. The British Empire is, to economic historians, a huge proponent of laissez-faire policies, such as free trade, but this would not be for some time. At this stage in its history, the English supported mercantilism. There will be, in the not-too-distant future, a whole series of episodes all about mercantilism, where we can properly explore all this in detail, but I'll just introduce the idea now. Basically, mercantilism wanted free trade, but only within the empire. The loss of bullion to other empires was minimised by setting up high tariffs on foreign imports. As part of this, colonies were not allowed to trade with other states. All their goods had to go back to the home country. This is what happened with the Navigation Acts. Tobacco from Maryland and Virginia had to be shipped back to England, rather than being allowed to sell directly to the continent, and a special duty was also imposed. The Navigation Acts will, over the course of the next hundred years, be a topic we frequently come back to, which is why we're going to cover it in a lot more detail, this is just a quick introduction, in terms of what it means for Virginia in the 1650s. The extra costs involved with this caused economic depression in the colony, which only got worse. In 1660, the monarchy was restored with King Charles II, and Berkeley was reappointed governor, but the Navigation Acts remained in place. I've spoken before about how land and wealth were becoming concentrated, and this process continued. When income dropped, the farmers were left with few options. They could either reduce expenditure, or they could go bankrupt. The poor freeholders, who were suffering already, as we've previously discussed, faced a sudden loss of income, at the same time as they were struggling because the tobacco had exhausted the soil. The wealthier landowners reduced costs by expanding slavery, something which was legalised in 1661, following the lead of Massachusetts, which had done so in 1641, and Connecticut, which had done so in 1650. They were both doing very well off it, and so Virginia followed suit. In 1671, when the colony was said to have a population of 40,000, 2,000 of those were slaves. The seasoning was brutal. At least half of all Africans died within three years. So, we have 
harsh trade impositions and slavery going on. What else? Well, in 1667, Virginia was hit by storms, hurricanes and floods, which destroyed between 10 and 15,000 homes and two-thirds of crops. Oh, and there was also plague, which killed half the animals, which had survived the floods, some 50,000. Then the English and Dutch went to war in 1673, and the Dutch started capturing Virginian ships, transporting whatever worthless tobacco the slaves had managed to grow. That pretty much sums up what was going on in mid-17th century Virginia. The colony continued to grow, the aristocracy continued to develop, most lived bleak, miserable lives. Colonial life was hard, but a notable middle class was developing, and other things developed around them, such as an interest in horse racing. Honestly, the speed with which Virginia developed is pretty remarkable. There was also work on the fringes of society in these years. While Jamestown and the heartland of Virginia began to develop an element of sophistication, the more primitive aspects of the colony moved to the frontier, to places such as Fort Henry. This was a base for fur trading, and for figures such as Abraham Wood, who made it all the way to the modern city of Radford, some 200 miles into the interior, and not too far from what would become the state of Kentucky. We're going to come back and cover more of the mid-17th century when we look at the states other than Virginia, so don't think that's all we'll have to say on the subject, but yeah, for the moment... That brings us into the 1670s. Our round today off with a quote by Berkeley, which has ended up being his most famous remark, one which would greatly set back people's views of Virginia. Quote, I thank God there are no free schools nor printing, and I hope we shall not have these hundred years, for learning has brought disobedience and heresy and sects into the world, and printing has divulged them and libels against the best government. God keep us from both. End quote. If you'll allow me to now quote Dabney's Virginia, the New Dominion, for his comment, quote, This notorious declaration was as remarkable for its arrogance as for its inaccuracy. End quote. For you see, there were in fact several free schools extant in Virginia when Berkeley made this ridiculous statement. And with that, we'll end things. Except, not quite. You see, I've been trying to work out ways to improve the show, and something I've been working on is the idea of segments. This is something I've been thinking about for a long time, and I think I've finally worked out how I want to introduce them into the show. You see, I love the narrative and I love what we're doing, but there are some things it just doesn't quite allow me to introduce without disrupting things. So what I want to do is I want to have the regular 15-20 minutes of narrative that we have during the episode, and then at the end I want to have in a segment or two which will rotate. There'll be a number of regular segments and a couple of special ones if I have anything I particularly want to cover, but it'll allow me to get into the stuff that doesn't fit into the narrative. I've thought of a few so far, which I think would be quite good. The first of which is... Dear Jamie, you see, I produce this show for you to listen to, and I want to cover the stuff that you're interested in, so if I skip over anything in the narrative 
and you're like, hey, I wonder what was John Smith doing while he was exploring the rivers in Virginia that you sort of skipped over, and I can get into that. Or maybe there's just an aspects of life I've overlooked. So if you have any questions, then you can send me an email or a message on Facebook or on Twitter. Um, just basically asking a question. Hashtag it if you want, dear Jamie. Idea number two is Curiosity Corner. You know how much I love my tangents and how much I like throwing them in. So this will be a way of me to deal with the stuff that I find interesting that doesn't quite fit into the narrative and just disrupts the flow of the story. The third is uh, Into the Footnotes, which will allow me to get into the academics side of things. Historians often like to debate theories in footnotes, and it's very interesting, but most people don't read them. Because why would you? It just disrupts the narrative to read the footnotes at the end of each page when you're reading a history book. So this can kind of be like that, like chapter notes at the end of the thing. We can cover the narrative, and then if there's an interesting academic debate concerning whatever that doesn't fit into the narrative, I can just say a word about it at the end. Today we're going to have our first segment. I'll work out theme music for this in the future. I won't have like theme music for all the segments. But today we're going to have... Curiosity Corner. Now, this was originally a tangent within the episode this week, but I thought that it would be better to just move it to the end and we can have it as our first segment. I want to talk for a moment about the tradition of no taxation without representation. This is a strong tradition in British politics and is still relevant today. At the time of writing, November 2015, there is something of a constitutional crisis going on in Britain. It has been a long-established tradition that the House of Commons is the only part of the English government which can decide monetary policy, since it is the only elected element of government. The other two pieces of government, the monarch and the House of Lords, do what the House of Commons decides in terms of taxation. So it caused a huge stir when the House of Lords defeated a bill which would cut tax credits. Strictly speaking, the House of Lords can defeat any bill at once, yet it is widely accepted that the House of Lords has no say on taxation. So, when the House of Lords voted down a bill on taxation which had been passed by the House of Commons, was it acting constitutionally? There isn't really an answer to this question, The British Constitution is rather complicated. But, point being, the tradition of Parliament, specifically the House of Commons, being the only body able to tax is a long and important one. See, wasn't that an interesting curiosity? If you've enjoyed today's episode, then please consider signing up for membership. You can do this by going to the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, and clicking on the PayPal subscription button. You can also help out by leaving an iTunes review. If you want to follow what's going on, then you can like the Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash the history of podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at History Jamie. And if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, then feel free to send me an email, thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.